0: So I wasn't here last week, but I watched Steve's talk and it was incredibly uh, helpful. So, Nehemiah, Old Testament book, um, and although it's in sort of the middle of the Old Testament, chronologically and thematically, thematically anyway, chronologically, it's at the end of the Old Testament. So, in terms of the events of Nehemiah, the thing that happens after Nehemiah is the coming of Jesus. So although it's sort of in the middle of the Old Testament in terms of its theme, it's at the end in terms of its history. So it's one of the Old Testament books, the last of the historical books. And what's happened is the people of Israel have returned from exile. They've come out of exile, but the walls of Jerusalem are still in ruin. So they've been out for like 70 years, but the walls are still in ruin. And uh, Nehemiah who is the cupbearer to the king, he's weeping. He's moved by God and he weeps. He weeps over the fact that the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem are still in ruins. And then he acts. His anger and his distress drive him into the presence of the Lord. The Lord reframes things for him, redirects him, and the Lord commissions him into action. So, Nehemiah complains about the scenario, but he complains to God. He doesn't complain to his mates. He doesn't go in a mood. He complains because there's an injustice, there's something wrong. He's emotionally affected and saddened by what he's seeing. But he takes his complaints to God, allows the Lord to redirect him. And I'm not very good at that, like, because I'm quite <laughs> impulsive. Like, When I have an idea, I want it to happen straight away. Coffee Street, for instance. Coming to Chesterfield, for instance. But when I have an idea, I want it to happen straight away. I obviously know that I should take things to God, but sometimes, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I see God as an unnecessary middleman, which is, again, something that Scripture disagrees with me on. But for instance, if you're feeling... If you're feeling anger towards someone, you may think, you know what? I really want to cause that person harm. I really want to exact vengeance on that person. I might want to hurt that person for what they've done wrong. But what Nehemiah is modelling here is that we take our emotions. Your emotions are genuine. All emotions are available and authentic. So feelings can't be your masters, but all feelings are are, are genuine. They're they're helpful. They're a good gauge of how you feel. But what Nehemiah is modelling is about taking those emotions to God and letting him decide what you do with them. So for instance, let's say that you want to to hurt someone because of something they've done wrong to you or your family. You take it to God and the Lord would say something like, well, you know in my word where I say vengeance is mine and not yours? Yeah, okay. So why don't... I'll tell you what. You come to me, and I'll give you my peace. You have this peace. Let me give you my peace that passes understanding. I not you to trust that I'll deal with the vengeance? I'll deal with the judgment because I'm actually the only one qualified to judge people. You get on with the business of loving people, and let me, let me judge. Let me exact vengeance where it's needed. So this is what Nehemiah is doing. Like he's really badly affected. By what he's seeing, the brokenness of the walls of Israel is making him broken. But he takes it to the Lord. He doesn't shut down. He doesn't get neggy. He doesn't go in a mood. He takes it to the Lord. The Lord commissions him. So the message of Nehemiah, again, the the first chapter is only quite short, so you haven't missed very much, but the message of Nehemiah, the whole book is about Nehemiah being sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And after the walls are rebuilt, then comes national repentance. So that's what happens in Nehemiah. And the message of Nehemiah, the theme, is twofold. Seemingly impossible tasks can be completed when God is on the case. So seemingly impossible tasks can be completed when God is helping you. That's one of the themes. And also, seemingly small acts of service or sacrifice can have massive and long-term benefits. So, seemingly small acts of service and sacrifice can have massively long-term benefits. So, for instance, if Nehemiah didn't feel moved by God to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, well, the walls wouldn't have been rebuilt. The temple wouldn't have been protected. Israel wouldn't have been protected. Without Israel, Jesus doesn't come. Without the protection of Jerusalem, Jesus Jesus doesn't come. Without Jesus, uh, there's no gospel. There's no good news. Without the good news, there's no Redeemer King. There's just broken walls and broken people. Two and a half thousand years later, everyone in this room, and lots and lots of churches around the country, every church around the country, but us as Redeemer King, we can be grateful that Nehemiah was saddened by what he saw, took it to the Lord, who redirected him and drove him to action. We can be grateful that Nehemiah said yes to the call on his life. There are people in your life, in my life, in our lives, waiting for you to say yes to the call on your life. There are people who need to know how loved they are, the freedom that's an offer through relationship with Jesus, that the best is yet to come, that their worst actions don't condemn them. And for some people in your lives, you're going to be the one to tell them that. There are people in your lives who will be with Jesus for eternity because you're going to share the gospel with them. And you haven't done it yet with some people. Because God's waiting for you to say yes. The call's already there. He's not going to disqualify you. Like it's it's sealed in blood. It's paid on the nail. But God's waiting for you to say yes. And people in your life, they don't know it yet, but they're waiting for you to say yes to the call on your life. So that's what Nehemiah is 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 modelling. And how do, we, how do we know what God's calling us to? Well, we just, we just ask him. We ask him. But, you know, we've, we've just gone through James, and in James it says, you know, you should expect an answer. If you're, if you're lacking wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. When we come to the Lord, he doesn't say, well, sorry, you need to really deal with your uh, web history before I can talk to you. He doesn't say anything like that. He's not going to say, well, you know, the way you talked to your sister on the phone the other day, that's not, that's not good. I'll tell you what, I'll give you wisdom when you've dealt with that. It's not how God works. It's not how Jesus works. He gives generously to all without finding fault. And he will redirect you. It's not that the things that you've done wrong aren't wrong. They are wrong. But God's not caught out. He's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed. And he doesn't condemn. He speaks truth in love. And the truth can be hard, but it's always said in love. When it's said by God. So we should expect an answer. If you're going to ask God something, expect an answer. Expect an answer. He will talk to you. He will speak to you. Through, through his word, through prayer, through the, the counsel of, of other people. Steve Parker said last week, um, the standout line for me was Steve Parker said, Prayer alerts us to the strategic opportunities that God provides. Prayer alerts us to the strategic opportunities that God provides. Prayer meaning talking to God and letting him talk to us. So that's what we described prayer as a couple of weeks ago. Talking to God and letting him talk to us. It alerts us to the strategic opportunities that God provides. Because God's never sleeping and God's never doing nothing. Even when we're sleeping and we're doing nothing, he's not. Like, he's already got a battle plan for us. He's got a blueprint for what he wants us to do. Prayer alerts us to those opportunities. It's like so prayer is like night vision goggles. Night vision goggles. You see, you, you put on your night vision goggles at night, and all of a sudden you can see, you can see where the heat is, you can see the lie of the land. Prayer's like spiritual night vision goggles. It alerts us to the opportunities that God provides. All right, let me read the passage. The last verse of uh, chapter one is. I was cupbearer to the king. So this is how Nehemiah sets up the preface. I was cupbearer to the king. Now this is, it's not a mistake that that's the last verse of chapter 1. Because what's he saying? He's saying two things. He was cupbearer to the king. Now what does that mean? It it means first of all that he's not royalty. He's a cupbearer. He's a servant. He's not royalty. He's not a warrior. He's not a big name. He was one of the most trusted people in the king's court. Because if you're going to kill a king and you know you can't get to him physically because he's surrounded by guards, well, what, what will you most likely do? You'll most likely poison him. And he was the cupbearer. He was the taster. Nehemiah was the royal taster. Nehemiah had the best opportunity to kill and harm the king. So although he wasn't royalty, although he wasn't a warrior, he wasn't a captain in the army, he was trusted. His seemingly low position was vital. And the the king had given him that place of honor, honor and trust. And I just want to encourage us all that your position, where you are now, geographically, socially, You're perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next. You are perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next. Where you are is not an accident. Now, that is not to say that God is a puppeteer. He's not a puppeteer. And it's not to say that God thinks that the the bad stuff that's happened to you is is good, because he doesn't think that either. But he's not caught out, he's not surprised, and he's the greatest crisis manager of all time. He's the Lord man. You are perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next. Have you just lost a job? Perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next? Have you just come out of a relationship? You're perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next. Have you just recently given your life to the Lord? You're perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next? Do you have no money or a little food? It's tragic. But you're perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next. Because the gospel is that he'll never leave you and never forsake you. He has never left you and never forsaken you. You may feel like you're a lowly status. But you're perfectly positioned for what God wants you to do next. And what we have to realize is that when we give our life to Jesus, when we become Christians, our mentality changes. What we... Our lives are are not stories about us, actually. You you are not the star of your life. But you can win the award for best supporting actor. You can. And you'll never get fired by the director because he knows you. And he gave you the role. But you're not the star of your life. What we need to do is to detach the gospel from the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says lots of things. But what it basically says is because Jesus is so awesome and it's always victory in Christ, and we are more than conquerors through Christ, therefore, money, wealth, success, amazing relationships, no. Maybe. But that's not the promise. Like, God doesn't promise any of these things. The best sort of prayer, Steve was saying last week, the best sort of prayer is when we call God out on the things that he's promised. That's an amazing prayer. Tell God what he said. Remind him of what he said. He knows what he said, but remind him. Like, Lord, it says in your word, or Lord, when I was 12, you spoke to me and you said this. The things he promises are that he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never break his covenant with you. He'll always love you. He'll always offer freedom and joy and peace. And he will build his church. So if you want to pray, Lord, build your church. He's like, yeah, that's a great prayer to pray. If you want to say, Lord, build my conservatory. Well, no. Maybe. I speak to Mick Belfield. He's really good at building. But go to him rather than the Lord on that, on that occasion. His position's not an accident. So here we go. There's a four-month gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, I'll just read, we're just reading the first sort of 10 verses. In the month of Nisan, not the car, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple? and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, this is the key verse, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So, bear in mind, in, in chapter 1, Nehemiah is, is weeping over the broken down city walls, uh, and he's taking it to God. And chapter 2, four months have, have passed. So what's going on there? It's a sign that long-held passion is key. Long-held passion is key. Nehemiah is not being impulsive by speaking out to the king this way. Long-held passion is key. When I was uh, 11, um, went on holiday. Two things happened when I was 11. I made two declarations as far as I'm probably more, but I remember two declarations. Went on holiday, and I told my mum and dad, we played uh, crown green bowls. And I decided I was going to be the greatest crown green bowler that this country has ever seen. I said to my mum and dad, this is the best sport ever. I'm going to be an amazing crown green bowler. Get me all the stuff. Get me all the bowls or whatever you call them. I haven't really done the research. Get me that little white snooker ball. Get me some AstroTurf. I'm going to be an amazing crown green bowler. And I meant it. I remember thinking this is, this is it for me now. Because, you know, girls love a crown green bowler. <laughs> don't they? Really, they they are the rock stars of the uh, pensioner sporting world. A week later, they're all called Matt, beautiful interjection by Paul Hans Bennett. A week later, um, I couldn't care less about Crown Green Balls, it's a boring sport, no one cares, it's horrible, isn't it? It's boring, tedious. When I was 11, I also decided that I wanted to be a comedian. I wrote down in an exercise book uh, as part of an English lesson, I want to be a comedian like Rowan Atkinson. Uh, And as you know, those who know me, that's been my profession for 15 years. you see, there's a difference between an impulsive decision and a deeply held passion. So the question is for you, what is your passion? What is the desire of your heart that God has given you? You might have had yours fulfilled. You might have seen it work its way out but probably not all of them so the question is what are the things that haven't gone away the things that no matter what mood you've been in haven't gone away those desires to serve god to build his kingdom you know my desire to be a comedian predates my conversion to christianity by about 10 years The Lord put them in me because he knew me before I knew him. The Lord gives us the desires of our hearts, it says. That works two ways. He plants them in us and then he brings them to fruition once we come into line with his will. And anointing, we hear the word anointing. Anointing is really when your yes and God's yes are in the same place. So it's something for us to think about. What are the desires of your heart to build God's kingdom that haven't been, haven't been made, haven't come to fruition, because you know what? You, you have a right to call God out on those things, because if those are the things He's put into you, then He should bring them out. And you can, you know, this is where you should come and talk to us as 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 leaders as well, because we need to help you. Like that's our role. Our role is to build the priesthood of all believers. There are no star names at Redeemer King. There are no star names. I know I do a lot of national stuff, and Carl does a lot of national stuff. But we're not interested in being the stars. (laughs) I'm not... My role here is evangelist but I'm not one of the best five evangelists in the church I'm not I might not even be top 10 but I don't I don't want to be see the primary role of an evangelist is to equip the saints for acts of service what I really want to do and what gives me the most pleasure is building and rebuilding broken walls in the form of confidence I'm here to build and rebuild confidence in the gospel Confidence that when we speak to people about God's love, things change. That when we live in freedom, things change. That it is possible to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what I'm here for. I don't need to be the best evangelist. Nothing gives me greater pleasure and greater joy. Nothing, honestly. Apart from maybe hearing my daughters do a trump by mistake. I mean, that's obviously number one. But beyond that, nothing gives me greater pleasure than when someone from RK comes to me and says... I shared the gospel with somebody at the bus stop or or my hairdresser. Like, it's the best feeling because we're trying to build up the priesthood of all believers. There is a hierarchy, but it's not Carl, Andy, everyone else. It's Jesus, everyone else. That's the hierarchy. You've got to have a leader. You can't lead from the middle. You do need someone to lead, say, we're going this way. The Lord said we're going this way, so that's where we're going. You try and have... A total democracy, you'll just end up with anarchy. But the Lord is the one leading us. And Carl's job is just to listen to the Lord and to say, okay, this is what we feel like the Lord is saying. We're we're going in this direction. Who's coming? So tell us... You know, if you come to us and say, I really feel like we should have a different theology, we we probably can't help with that because that's sort of already set. We're Bible-believing Christians. If you think we should be kind of, you know, we should build a wicker man or like a, a green totem pole. We're probably not going to do that. But if you come to us as a and say, oh, I really feel like I should have set up a food bank by now. I really feel like I should be setting up a, um, you know, a, a, a forest school or a, a, a mums and toddlers group. Or I really feel like I should just be out on the street sharing the gospel. We can help with that and we need to. And in the same way that you can remind God what He's said, you can remind us what we've said. We want to be transparent as leadership. If, if we haven't helped build you up in your gifts and your God-given desires, we've got it wrong, and we need to say sorry to you. So that's who we want to be as a leadership. We want to be able to say, look, yeah, sorry, we've got it wrong. And we do get it wrong. We're not perfect by any means. I told off a baroness. Although that's to my credit, really. So not a good example. So... We're here to build and rebuild confidence, build and rebuild broken walls. Uh, verse two, the king says, "Why does your face look sad?" And the response is, "Well, why not? <laughs> why shouldn't he be sad? Like his, the place where his ancestors are buried are in ruins. Without sadness, there's no action. And this is again where we need to be careful um, what we allow society to tell us because. Our society is driven on consumerism and the pursuit of happiness. All you need to do to pursue happiness is to ignore anything that doesn't bring you happiness. But you don't have to be a parent for very long to realize that that doesn't work. The pursuit of happiness is fine until any other human being comes into your life. Because at some point, their needs and your needs will clash. And if you're going after happiness, well, all you have to do is ignore them. All emotions are justifiable. Anger, sadness, grief, they're all authentic. They don't get to define us, but they're good signposts to what's going on. And they should be signposts to God's presence, not to shutting down, not to escaping, but getting into his presence. Because in his presence is wisdom and fullness of joy, as it says in the start. Without sadness, there's no action. The pursuit of happiness is uh, is short-sighted. You see, two things that our society is totally inconsistent. There isn't a coherent worldview in our society. On the one hand, you've got, make yourself happy. Do what makes you happy. And on the other hand, you've got, it's okay not to be okay. Now, it is okay not to be okay. Of course it's okay not to be okay. And happiness isn't a bad thing. But as Christians, there has to be a, a third way. We have to be able to like marry those two things into something that coheres. And the gospel is that you're not always going to be happy, and you shouldn't be, because there's other things, there's other emotions that will help you grow beyond happiness. And there's other people in your life who, who you're responsible for. So your happiness is not the be all and end all. It's not all about you. And it is okay not to be okay. But like Nehemiah, we don't have to sit in it. We don't have to sit in that not being okay. It's brilliant to say I'm not okay, rather than denying the reality. But we've we've got a greater hope. We've got a better story to tell than the one society is telling itself which is that when you're not okay, don't just sit there. Take it to the Lord. Because he'll say, well, your walls are broken down, so let's rebuild them. I'm sending you to rebuild broken walls. Um, What's great about Nehemiah is that he doesn't allow his fear. He says, "I I was terribly afraid. He was terribly afraid because the king could have had him executed for looking sad. So in that culture... Anything that displeased the king, he could just kill someone. So Nehemiah, by looking sad, could have been executed. He wasn't afraid to let his emotions show, and, that, and that's great. But he didn't let his fear dominate or dictate. My first ever gig, January 23rd, 2005, the Portacella Cellar bar down in, in, in Bath. I was on uh, in the middle, and all the other acts had gone out. The compo was on stage, I'd never done comedy before, and all the other acts had gone out, and I was staring in this, in this little green room, which was like a kind of um, cupboard, and the door to the stage was on my left, and the door to the car park was on my right, and it was like a spiritual tug of war. I thought, part of me was thinking, just go, just go. Open the door and run to the car, no one will know, they don't know your name or where you live, you can just go, no one will know. Just drive home, keep yourself safe. And if I'd done that, I, I wouldn't be doing comedy. And if I, would, I didn't do comedy, I wouldn't be preaching the gospel. That one choice, little choice, little sacrifice, made a huge difference. Because there was, there's more than one emotion going on at any one time. There's not just one emotion at work. Joy and sorrow can flow mingled down together. You can feel fear and purpose simultaneously. You can feel fear and hope simultaneously. And we need to let the Lord redirect us. Fear is a natural thing, but the Bible tells us more than it tells us anything else. Do not be afraid. Not, Don't experience any fear, but do not stay afraid. Because I'm with you, and I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. And sometimes we've got to be patient. As I said a few weeks ago, patience, the biblical idea of patience, isn't waiting for that thing to happen that you want to happen. Patience is endurance in spite of opposition. Endurance in spite of opposition, not waiting for the thing that you've decided that should happen, should happen. So the the king says to him, what is it that you want? I can see that you say, what is it that you want? And then it says, I prayed to God. And eight times in Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays spontaneously to God. And I love that. What is it that you want? He's got this desire, he's got this emotion of sadness, and it's a desire for something to change, and he takes it to God straight away. The King says, "What do you want? Okay, Lord, what is it? What is it I want in this? What do you want in this, God?" So there's a there's a sequence of things I've, I've picked out. It goes emotion, desire, prayer, action equipping, going. So, you feel the emotion. In this case, sadness. I feel sad. I've got a desire for things to change, but I'm not just going to change that. I'm not going to be the agent to change myself. I'm going to take it to God, take it into prayer. God will then speak to me and tell me what to do. And this is the thing, like, I'm not very good at this. Whenever I ask God what to do, he, t- he tells me, but I I often don't ask. I often just try and model through in the hope that in some way he's with me. And he is with me. But he also wants to speak to me through his word and through prayer. So you have the emotion, whether it's sadness or anger. You've got a desire for something to happen as a result of that. So take it to prayer. Let your emotions drive you into the presence of the Lord. Because he will redirect you. He will reframe the situation. And he'll give you guidance. And then when you know the operating within his will, well, you'll feel a lot better about things anyway. When you know that he agrees with what you're doing and he's commissioned you to do that, you'll feel a lot better and you'll see better results anyway. So emotion, desire, prayer, action as a result of prayer. So that's what's happening. And then what happens after that is the equipping phase. So verse 7. If it pleases the king, let me read that whole verse, verse 7. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors and may I have a letter to Asaph so he will give me timber. So this is, this is the breakthrough moment. Once he's had that word from God, once he's had that permission and that commission, then it's like, okay, I need to be equipped. You said this, so I need this. If I'm going on this journey, I need this, this, and this, and this. And suddenly, the guy who moments before was terrified he was going to be executed is now making demands of the king because the Lord has intervened. The sadness and the fear has become confidence because he's taken it to the Lord. and The Lord has said, presumably, go, you need this. Once you hear from the Lord, once you realize what he's calling you to, once you have that calling on your life, then we pray the big prayers. So praying the big prayer comes at that point, once we've heard from the Lord. So we don't start off with, God, I've got this amazing desire to have the biggest llama farm in Europe. So I'm going to need llamas, God, and a farm and all the other stuff that goes with it. Well, what's God going to say to that? You're an idiot. Llamas? Alpacas at best. But if you've taken it to the Lord and He says, I want you to have the biggest llama farm in Europe, well then, you can pray. By the way, no one I didn't plan to say that. It's just something that came to mind. No one's thinking about having a llama farm. Andrea, are you doing a llama farm? Oh, Andrea is doing a llama farm. You're going to need llamas on a farm. If the Lord says, I want you to have the biggest llama farm in Europe, then you pray the big prayers. Okay, I'm going to need llamas, I'm going to need a farm, I'm going to need uh, helpers. Once God has commissioned you, pray big prayers. But once he's commissioned you. But once he has commissioned you, don't pray small prayers. Once you have his favour, and you know that this is old covenant, you do have his favour. He is pleased with you. Jesus has died for you. He's given you fullness of life. You do have his favor. The the door to the throne room is open all the time. We can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know I've got your favor. And I know I want to build your kingdom. So I need this. Lord, I really want to take Chesterfield for the gospel. So we need a base. Oh, Coffee Street's up for sale. Or, oh, Lord, I want to I um, heal your people, but I'm going to need like a medical degree. Okay, whatever it is, pray the big prayers because we've got a big God. We have to differentiate between our big God and our big ego. That's the difference. Our big prayers have to come out of our desire to serve our big God, not our big ego. That's the break point. Once you know that you're praying within his will, that's when things get exciting. Just you see what time we're on? We're, we're, we're nearly done. Okay, cool. I remember when I was... Um, see, the key verse is because the gracious hand of god was on me the king granted my requests when god commissions you well the lord is with you he will fight for you you need only be still you've got god's favor god doesn't show favorites which means that everyone in this room is god's favorite the hierarchy is jesus and everyone else no one's better than it we've got different gifts but we're parts different parts of the same body I remember I was, I was praying, um, I was in Birmingham, and I was going through a time of introspection. I was like, Lord, what, who am I? I was asking him, like, who am I? What do you want from my life? What is, what is it that I do? Who am I? And I heard him say four things. I heard him say four words. I can't remember which order he said, but he said, um, you're a, a father, a comedian, a preacher, and a friend. Those were the four things that he said. Father, comedian, preacher, and friend. And... I thought, well, but am I a good comedian, though? You haven't said I'm a good comedian. Like, Am I a a lovely preacher? (laughs) Am I a nice friend? Am I a good dad? But I'd missed the point. Because when God calls something, it is good. He makes it, and he sees that it's good. When God tells you who you are, implicit in that is the reality that it is good. That's your identity. God doesn't make junk. He's not a bootlegger. And this is the key for us. We need to be able to come to God and actually ask Him, Lord, who am I? What do you want? Spontaneously, like Nehemiah does, but also just more generally, like, Lord, what's happening next? Who am I? And trust that the things He says to you are good. I don't think I'm a good dad. But God says, I am a father. I'll take his word over mine. Like, some people think I'm the best comedian they've ever seen. Some people think I'm the worst. But so what? God says, I'm a comedian. He's called me to that. He's called me to be a preacher. He's called some of you to be teachers. He's called some of you to work for Royal Mail. Like, he's called some of you to be parents, to be husbands and wives, to be drivers, whatever, to be musicians, drummers, whatever, to be builders. When God calls you, implicit in that is that it is good, because his will is good. He doesn't make junk, and although we make mistakes, he doesn't. So, just a, quick, a very quick example of that. Um, I was with a friend, uh, Lorna, we were praying for a group of people, we didn't know them. And uh, Lorna got this word for this guy, and she said, God says you're a good husband. You're a good husband. And after, um, <laughs> afterwards, these other guys came up to us and told Lorna off. They said, you got that wrong because that guy's just had an affair. He's not a good husband. And Lorna said, no, I, I didn't get it wrong because God's opinion is more important than yours. You don't decide he's a good husband out of your fear and insecurity. He's a good husband. God speaks truth in love. He calls it as it is. But when we come to God, and we, wherever, wherever we've been, whatever state we're in, emotionally or physically, psychologically, we come to God and he speaks to us and he restores us to factory settings. He restores us to factory settings. I feel like, God, I failed. Yes, you failed. I'm a failure. No, you're not a failure. You failed. Your action didn't go well. Those llamas died. But you're not a failure. No one likes llamas. You're not a failure. (laughs) I honestly hadn't planned to say anything about llamas. What a moron. Um, God's just said, I I am a moron. Uh, So, here we go. Romans 4 says, He gives life to the dead and calls things that were not as though they were. He gives life to the dead and calls things that were not as though they were. Do you feel like you're broken down? It's rhetorical. (laughs) Yes, I do, actually. (laughs) Is everything broken down? Let's rebuild. Is your life rubble? Let's rebuild. Has everything crumbled? Have the seeming promises been snatched away? Let's rebuild, says the Lord. Wherever you're at, it's time to build and rebuild. And as I said before, you know, that's That's why we call it the gospel. He gives life to the dead and calls things that were not as though they were. When you build for God, God builds you. When you build for God, God builds you. When God sends you to ruins, implicit in that promise is that he won't ruin you. Those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. God looks at you and says, child of God. That's the main thing that he says. Child of God. Son, daughter, friend, brother, sister. The stuff he says about us is good. In verse 10... And verse 19, which is going to be focused on last week, next week, (laughs) last week, time travel. In verse 10, it says, Sambalat Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite were very much disturbed that someone came to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And then in verse 19, it says, When Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab who's turned up, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? When you step out to build for God, you will face opposition. That's a theme coming through Nehemiah as we go through it. You are going to face opposition, and people will mock you. But then we'll end on this. Verse 20, Nehemiah says, I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Wherever you're at, however broken things are, however unlikely it seems that things can be rebuilt, let it drive you in to the presence of God who will say invariably, let's rebuild. And then you speak to your enemy and you say, you have no claim. You have no authority here. The thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, and sometimes we let it. We've all had things stolen and destroyed. But we're here now, and we speak to the enemy. Say, so you know what? The Lord has commissioned me. You have no claim on me, or on my future. You have no historic right. My birthright is freedom. My birthright is relationship with God who gives life to the dead and calls things that were not as though they were. Hallelujah. Amen.